Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have gathered us together. We thank you that we are reconciled to you through the shed blood of Christ, through his atoning work on Calvary, through the perfect life that he lived and the death that he died on behalf of all who would trust in him. And Father, as we come to your word today, Father, we are grateful for your word, for the work that it accomplishes in us. And Father, as we come to this this very accurate prophecy today, I pray that we would not only be astonished at the accuracy of it, but that we would be in awe of the Savior, that we would see the great love of Christ in Psalm 22, in order that our lives would be more fully devoted to glorifying him in all that we do. Please use this time to glorify Christ. Please use this time to sanctify and strengthen and encourage your people for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 22. The first Sunday of every month, we do uh, put one foot in the Old Testament, doing a study in the Psalms. The rest of the month, we're studying the gospel according to John. But today, we're going to be in Psalm 22, which is really a psalm that could be preached on Good Friday, and I think you'll see that as we go through. Uh, But what I concluded was, instead of waiting until the Easter season to preach this, it's never too soon, and it's never too late to set our hearts and our minds and our affections, our thoughts on what was necessary for our redemption in Christ's work. So we'll be looking at Psalm 22 today. I've called this sermon, The Song of a Dying Shepherd. The first Bible study that took place after the resurrection of Jesus actually took place toward the end of Luke's gospel narrative where Jesus drew drew near to two disciples who were uh, on the road known as the road to Emmaus. And these two disciples were in total despair as they walked away from Jerusalem where Jesus had been arrested by Roman authorities, where he had been tried under Pontius Pilate, and where he had been crucified, and where he died on Calvary. They had been told that morning by the women who had come to the tomb that Jesus' body wasn't there. And they had been told that these women were told by angels uh, that he was alive. But these two disciples apparently didn't believe the testimony of the women because, again, As they're walking the road of Emmaus, they are in a state of total despair. We read this in Luke's account, Luke 24, verses 15 to 17. While they were walking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. 
And of course, we know that they went on to explain to Jesus all the things that, that we just went through. They, they were explaining to Jesus all these things that had happened to Jesus uh, in, over the course of the past few days. Then Luke tells us this in verses 25 to 27. And he, Jesus, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's the first Bible study that took place after the resurrection, led by none other than Jesus himself. He walked these two disciples through the Old Testament, explaining to them all that he had to endure. Don't you wonder, by the way, what scriptures he must have drawn their attention to? What scriptures he might have drawn, uh, you know, opened the Bible to, uh, to explain these things to them? I mean, wouldn't it have been amazing to, to see and to, to hear Jesus in person explaining these texts, preaching these texts to these two disciples, and how they pointed to the work that Jesus had come to accomplish. We can be sure, I think, fairly, fairly certain, that he would have referred to the promise in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a redeemer through the seed of the woman. I think we can be pretty certain that he also touched on many verses throughout the book of Isaiah. There are a lot of verses in Isaiah that, that talk about the work that Jesus came to accomplish. Um, I, I think there are probably um, other ones, but those are very obvious texts. Uh, there are also many texts that aren't so obvious that I'm sure he also touched on. But one passage in particular, indeed one entire chapter that I have no question he would have touched on was Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David, uh, and yet while David did go through a lot of hard times in life, while David did face some fierce trials and and tribulations uh, throughout his life, what gets described in Psalm 22 does not line up with any trial or any point in David's life at all. It's a psalm that was written by David, but is entirely prophetic. It's a psalm that vividly describes an execution by crucifixion, told from the perspective of the one being executed. Crucifixion, I mean, it wasn't even practiced in David's day, and it certainly was not experienced by David. And if it was, he certainly didn't live to tell about it, right? Uh, So no, this psalm is entirely prophetic foretelling of the agony and the suffering that the Messiah, that Jesus himself, would endure as he was executed by crucifixion. In fact, it seems pretty apparent, and by the time we're done, I I think you'll agree, it seems pretty apparent that this psalm was the scripture that Jesus was thinking about, that he was meditating on, that he was reciting on that good and awful Friday as he hung on the cross. As Jesus was being led to the place where he would die on a cross, women were mourning in the streets and they were lamenting his impending death. But he turned to them and he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And he would go on to foretell of the awful days of tribulation which were to come. The next thing Jesus is quoted as saying is, 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The next thing he said is quoted as saying after that was to the repentant thief on the cross next to his when he said, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The amazing thing about all of these things that Jesus is quoted as saying uh, in, in this text, in, in, in those texts, is that he was thinking about others the entire time. As he was going to the cross, he says, don't weep for me, weep, weep for yourselves. Because he understood what was coming. He, he's thinking about others, not himself, the whole time. He wasn't thinking about himself at all from what we can tell based on what he's quoted as saying. But that all seems to have changed at a very specific point in the crucifixion scene. When darkness came at noon and lasted for three hours, at that point, Jesus' attention changes. His attention turns to the Father, who Isaiah tells us was pleased to crush the Son. His attention is turned to the Father and to himself, his, his circumstances. At the beginning of this time of darkness, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what text he was quoting? Psalm 22. He was quoting Psalm 22. Next, Jesus would declare, I am thirsty, which is a, a clear reference to Psalm 69, 21, which says, They also gave me gall for my food, and my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, that's exactly what the soldiers did. Jesus was, as he hung on the cross, he was reviewing and reciting these passages, undoubtedly making sure that they were all fulfilled until finally he called out just before giving his life up, it is finished. And that is a quote from the end of Psalm 22. If you look down at the end of Psalm 22 in our Bibles, it says, he has performed it. But as James Montgomery Boyce notes, he says, quote, There is no object for the verb in Hebrew, and it can equally well be translated, it is finished. So when you consider all these things, when you consider all the evidence, it seems extremely apparent, extremely likely, that the psalm we'll be looking at today was one of the passages, indeed maybe one of the main passages, that Jesus was meditating on as he hung on the cross. And I say all of this to remind us of the events that transpired on that good and awful day. But now let us begin our study of this psalm with these things fresh in our minds. The psalm is really broken up into two parts. There are two main parts of this psalm. Uh, from verse 1 to 21, it's a cry of despair, um, cries of despair. And in the second part, from verses 22 to 31, it's actually a song of celebration, a song of victory, a song of praise. And put together, when you put these two sides together, this is a psalm of a dying shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. So as we begin, you'll see that the psalm alternates. It kind of goes back and forth between what Jesus is thinking about, between describing his suffering and, and the current conditions that he's under and crying out to God for help. So we'll start with the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2. We read this, uh, and, and of course this is inspired text as well. The directions are uh, inspired text as well. Verses 1 and 2 say, For the choir director, upon Ijeleth Hashashar, a psalm of David, My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Now, it might not look like a very significant thing that you find this, this big Hebrew term, uh, phrase in there, right? David says this song is to be sung upon Ajaleth Hashashar. Uh, that means on the hind of morning, or in other words, after the morning, which means that noon would be the most appropriate time to sing it. And as we've already noted, it was at noon that the sky darkened and Christ started quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1, in fact. The quote reveals that he was feeling as though God had abandoned him. And yet he would not abandon hope in God. It felt like God had abandoned him, but he would not abandon his hope in God. Three times in these two verses, he cries out, My God! We would hope that the application here would be pretty obvious. Here's Jesus feeling forsaken by God, feeling abandoned by God, and yet, in the midst of this despair, what's he doing? He's crying out to God. How many times have you felt forsaken by God? How many times have you felt like God had just abandoned you? I mean, it happens. We we, we can't see the forest for the trees. And when we're in the valley, when we're in times of trial and tribulation and despair, it's very, very easy for us to feel this way, to feel like God has forsaken us, like He's abandoned us. And here's the thing, I mean, you can memorize Bible verses, but when you're there in the valley, when you are in the midst of turmoil and despair, facing death maybe, you'd better do more than just have those verses memorized. You'd better also believe them too. I'm talking about verses like Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28, for we know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Romans 8 verses 38 to 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, these verses, just in Romans 8 alone, these verses are so good. And they are so appropriate to put to memory. Because if the Lord doesn't return first, every single last one of us here today will face death someday. And if you ever feel abandoned by God, either, either in life or as you are coming near death, what Jesus is showing us here is that the appropriate response is to cry out to God in faith. Jesus himself is our example here. Jesus, for all of eternity, if you think about it, that's, that's a really long time, forever, right? He had experienced unbroken, loving communion with the Father for all of eternity, But at this point, it's broken. 
At this point, he's feeling abandoned, forsaken. And so he calls out, and there's only silence. Now, some people, when they're trying to explain this, trying to wrap their minds around this, because this is really deep stuff, uh, when they say that, they'll say, you know, Jesus said this, it was just kind of a figure of speech. Um, But the question that I have is, would Jesus be wrong about something? Is it possible for Jesus to have said, why have you forsaken me, if indeed he wasn't forsaken? Could he be wrong? Did the Father not really abandon him? That's what some people want to think. That's what some people argue. Uh, but the thing is, Jesus went to the, to the cross to bear the wrath of God against man's sin. Um, you know, he, he came to do this. He came to hang on that cross, to face God's wrath, to bear God's wrath on behalf of all who would believe. All the sins of those people who believe would be laid on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus became sin for us. And Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God is too holy to look on evil. He can't look at sin. So while there is a mystery as to how the Father could forsake the Son without breaking the unity of the Trinity, it is clear, I believe, that this is what happened. There's an aspect of mystery here. Jesus was forsaken. He felt abandoned. What does it mean to be forsaken? To to be forsaken by God means for God to turn the light of his countenance away from a person. It means to be cursed by God. And that is what every person, in every place, in every time, in all the earth deserves. Jesus is the one person who doesn't deserve that, who doesn't deserve, who didn't deserve to be forsaken. He is the one person who was perfectly blameless, perfectly sinless. Only those who sin deserve to be cursed or forsaken by God. But Jesus had to be forsaken by God so that those who believe in him, those who believe in Jesus Christ, would not be forsaken by God. He became a curse for us so that we would be free from the curse. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It's a mysterious thing, and yet, it's such a beautiful, glorious thing. When Jesus was only met with darkness and silence as he cried out to God, Why have you forsaken me? He turned his attention to the stories of God's faithfulness. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. It says, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The word that we keep seeing repeated in these verses is trusted. Trusted. We see it twice in verse 4, and then we see it once again in verse 5. What did God do for those who trusted? He delivered them. He rescued them. He, He ransomed and redeemed them. That's what the focus turns to here. So the way that God did this for those who trusted. 
From expressing his feelings of of being forsaken or abandoned by God, the psalmist records a shift in the, the attention and the thinking of the suffering Messiah. He now turns his mind to the way that God had always, consistently, faithfully been there for his people to deliver them. Now, there are a couple different takes on this, a couple different ways of of interpreting or approaching this. The first is to assume that that the Messiah is basically thinking, you didn't abandon them, you didn't forsake them, but you have abandoned and forsaken me. Uh, You know, you rescued them, but you're not going to to rescue me. Uh, But the other way of looking at it, which I think is correct, especially in light of the whole psalm here, is to see it as Jesus reflecting on the faithfulness of God to his people in the midst of their distress. Not hopelessly thinking on these things, but thinking in terms of just God's character. God has always, always, always been faithful to those who would trust in him. Will he not be faithful now as the Messiah hangs on the cross, feeling abandoned near death. Didn't those people feel despair as well, whom God saved? Didn't they have times when they were in the valley? Didn't they have times when they were in distress as well? And yet what we see is God's character shining through his faithfulness to his people. So, is it not safe for him to assume that God will be faithful to him now? as he hangs on the cross, nearing death. Yes. Yes, he he will be. And I believe that that's the right take, the right interpretation of these verses. See, friends, Jesus is our example here. Do do you see how he's our, our example? If or when you are feeling abandoned or forsaken by God, it is so helpful, it is immensely helpful for us to set our minds on something about God, to remember his character, to remember his unfailing love, his faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. I mean, this is one of the best reasons I can think of for a person to read the Bible regularly, including the Old Testament, maybe especially the Old Testament, since the Old Testament is you know, just filled to the brim with stories of God's never-failing love, his utter faithfulness unto those who trust in him. That is God's character. And God is unchanging. He doesn't just say that he's faithful. He doesn't just claim to be faithful. No, he's given us stories of his faithfulness to reflect on in the midst of our own suffering and trials. And that's what Jesus is doing here. In the next section, Jesus' perspective, his, his thoughts will once again swing the other way. He'll once again start considering his own situation as he was hanging on the cross. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. 
If you're familiar just a little bit with the New Testament and the accounts of the crucifixion, this should just put you in awe because that's exactly what we see taking place on Calvary. You remember exactly what Jesus had to endure, including the mocking of those around him. Jesus did feel forsaken by God, and he was mocked and scorned by man. God may have been silent at this point, but everyone around him was not silent. In Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 37, we read this, And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They're mocking him. They're saying, why, if, you're, if you're God's chosen one, why isn't he delivering you? The precision with which these events were foretold is astonishing, isn't it? And David tells us how that made Jesus feel. It made him feel like a worm. It made him feel degraded. It made him feel subhuman. Friends, if you've ever felt that way because somebody's insulted you for your faith, if you've ever lived out your faith publicly and it has resulted in people mocking you or scorning you, you see exactly what Jesus went through. If anyone has ever ridiculed you for your faith, you can know that Jesus knows how that feels. He knows the humiliation. How did he deal with it, though? How did he deal with the, the mockery and the ridicule? Well, in the next subsection of, uh, or the previous subsection of the psalm, he dealt with his feelings by remembering God's faithfulness to others, to, to all of his people throughout the ages. But now he's going to recount God's faithfulness to him personally. Let's continue by looking at verses 9 to 11. He continues saying, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. David is telling us prophetically that Jesus would remember that God has always been faithful to him even from his mother's womb. So the, the, the logical way of thinking about this is if God has always been faithful to me, why would he not be faithful now? That's the implied conclusion of these verses. What a wonderful thing to consider when there is nobody who can help that God's faithfulness, that his love for those who trust in him is never ceasing. This is the value, friends, of living your lives constantly in the shadow of the cross. When I lay on my deathbed someday, and I will unless the Lord comes back, and when you lay on yours, it will be a very, very good thing for us to spend a lot of time reflecting on our lives and on God's faithfulness to us throughout the journey. What will you remember when nobody can save you from death? What will you think about? What will you be considering? How has God 
been faithful to you so far. If you were to end up in the hospital tomorrow with the diagnosis that within the week you would be dead, what would your thoughts be on? What would you be reflecting on? What, what has God done for you? How has He blessed you? How has He provided for you? How has He worked all things in your life to make you more like the Savior Himself as Romans 8.28 promises? Here's my advice to you as your pastor. Learn to reflect on those things now. Learn to reflect on them today as this too is a great source of comfort in the midst of dark trials. Yes, consider God's faithfulness unto his people in Scripture. Those stories are amazing. But also think about how God has personally been faithful to you. Once again, in the next subsection, David will prophetically share with us the conditions that Christ endured for us. We'll continue by looking at verses 12 to 18. He says, many bulls, <clears throat> excuse me. He says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And, my, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Once again, it's just astonishing how precise this passage is in terms of describing what would take place on Calvary. This might be the most remarkable part of the psalm because it is very obviously referring to execution by crucifixion. They have pierced his hands and his feet. The section starts out with Jesus likening those around him to violent beasts, to, to bulls of Bashan and to, to violent dogs. Uh, not just bulls of Bashan, but strong bulls of Bashan, he says. Now, I don't know if it's ever safe to be surrounded by bulls. I, I wouldn't think so. But the bulls of Bashan were known for being exceptionally fierce and strong. Because of where Bashan was located geographically, the area gets more rain than a lot of other regions around there. More rain means more grass and more vegetation for grazing, uh, which means more food. More food means that these bulls were both bigger and stronger than other bulls from other regions. They were also more aggressive. They were more dangerous, more violent, more deadly than your everyday bull. But in their midst, as he's surrounded by them, Jesus is powerless. Let me correct that. In their midst, Jesus is not only powerless, but he's willfully powerless. He's willfully powerless. The one who created all things, the one by whom and for whom everything exists and who holds all things together was coming apart. His bones were becoming disjointed. 
None of his bones were broken, but his shoulders, his legs, his hips, his bones were all becoming disjointed as he hung on the cross. And yet, he willfully endured this. He willfully suffered. If you have believed in him savingly, friends, the reason he was willing is because you were at stake. Your eternal salvation was on the line. He did it for you. For you. Isaiah tells us the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And as we read this passage in Psalm 22, we can definitely see that the scene at Calvary is indeed one of disgusting grief. You know, when, when artists give us sketches of the scene at Calvary, it's often done uh, very modestly. Uh, but there was nothing modest about this scene. This scene was absolutely grotesque. You know, artists will at least usually put a towel around Jesus' waist, but he had no garment to cover himself with. The soldiers gambled for his garments. So he was hanging there naked and ashamed, being ridiculed, being mocked, being scorned, being disjointed. There's truly nothing, nothing at all modest or decent about this scene. It's disgusting. It's barbaric in every way imaginable. You know, in the past two Psalms that we've looked at, Psalm 20 and 21, we've seen that the king's victory is the victory of his people and the king's defeat is the defeat of his people, but not in this case. Here is Jesus, our God and King, suffering so that his people won't. Here is Jesus, our God and King, bearing the wrath of God against our sin, suffering greatly in body and spirit, and doing so so that we don't have to. So that we don't have to bear God's wrath against our sin. He's doing it as our federal head, as our representative. And yet, as horrible as the scene at Calvary truly was, Christ didn't lose hope. He didn't sink into the deepest depths of despair. After considering his own conditions and remembering the way that God has been faithful both to his people and to the Messiah himself personally, the Savior hanging on the cross, being disjointed, bleeding out, finds vindication and his perfect, unbroken union with the Father is restored. So there's a turning point that takes place in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 19 to 21. He says, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Now, despite the circumstances, the grotesque, barbaric circumstances, there is actually a triumphant climax here in which Jesus cries out, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. In this case, the Hebrew word that gets translated answer can also be translated as hear. 
As one commentator notes, he says in Hebrew, verse 21 ends with a one-word shout, you have heard me. The scene of despair is gone. The sense of being forsaken is gone. The physical suffering continues, yes, but from this point forward, it's almost as if Jesus doesn't even notice how much he's suffering. It's almost as if he doesn't care how barbaric the situation is, how grotesque the situation is. His work, he realizes, he remembers, was not in vain. His suffering was not in vain. The sense of being forsaken is gone, never to be felt again for all of eternity by Jesus. And so, this causes a turning point in the psalm. And now we change to a a song of victory, where Christ's victory is given to his people. The victory of the king is the victory of those who trust in him. We continue with verses 22 to 24, where we read, I will tell of your name to my brethren, In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Here's how we know this wasn't David. Verse 22, told from the cross, I will tell of your name to my brethren. Somebody who's about to die doesn't say that. Somebody who's about to die but who will raise again can say that. It it might seem kind of odd that Jesus in his dying moments is saying, I'm going to go out and preach to my brethren. But we have to understand that only Jesus, only the Messiah could do this because, of course, he would be resurrected. But in a fuller sense, here's what we need to understand. Jesus is still doing that. He's still saying to the brethren, declaring the name of the Lord to the brethren in the midst of the assembly. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus himself also speaks This is hard to understand because we would say that we don't physically hear Jesus when we hear the gospel being preached, when we hear the word of God being preached. And yet, consider some of the things that Jesus says. He says says in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says of his sheep, they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He's not just talking about the people of that time. He's talking about people throughout the ages, that they will hear his voice. Jesus is speaking of saints in his day and to our day. In in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Who hears his voice? Some of his sheep? All of his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. Those who are not his sheep do not hear his voice. 
Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the good news is proclaimed, there's a sense in which it is Jesus himself that is doing the proclaiming. Romans 10.14 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? It doesn't say, how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Although, if you have a translation other than the NASB, it will have the word of in italics inserted there. And the reason that it's in italics is to let you know that that word isn't in the original language. It's not in the original manuscripts. Uh, It's put there by translators who thought that it would make it easier to understand. No, it says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. Who's you there? Who's he referring to? Paul's talking about Jesus. But we know that Jesus never traveled to Ephesus. But you know who did? Paul did. And when Paul went to Ephesus, what did he do? He preached the gospel. And when he did, he's saying... He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Jesus was the one preaching. Jesus speaks when we preach, when we proclaim the gospel. Jesus calls out to his sheep when we preach, and they hear his voice, and they follow him to this day. What this means for us, friends, and I don't want to just say this because I'm the one preaching today, but when somebody opens up their Bible, and starts preaching, anybody, we'd be very wise to give our fullest attention. Because when the gospel is preached, Jesus is there preaching too. And his sheep hear his voice. And they do what? They follow him. That means they obey. They take his word seriously and they do what it says. Listen to what the author of Hebrews, by the way, says in in chapter 2, Hebrews uh, 2, verses 11 to 12. He quotes from this verse, from this passage here in Psalm 22. He says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for uh, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing there? He's saying that, that was, that's, that's Jesus. He's, he's making a direct connection between Jesus saying that and what we're reading in the psalm. He's saying those are the words of Jesus. As he hung on the cross, as his body was disjointed, pouring out blood like a blood offering, what he's thinking about is how one day he would preach the good news of the gospel to you and to me and to everybody, all of his sheep throughout the age which was to come. If you have heard his voice and followed him, it's because you're not only one of his sheep, but but what I want you to see here is that he calls you brother or, or sister. Now that might sound strange, but this is what he calls you. It's parallel in, in, verse, uh, in, in Psalm 22 uh, is to the phrases descendants of Jacob and descendants of Israel. And that's what we are. 
Every one of us, if you are in Christ, that's you. In the same sense that Paul meant when he wrote in Galatians 3.29 that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Gentiles have been grafted in, rendering us spiritual descendants of the patriarchs. What a wonderful thing to think. That as Jesus was about to die, he's thinking about the way he's going to preach the gospel to you someday. And that you would hear his voice and that you would follow. Let's continue, verses 25 to 29. He says, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. What Christ is reflecting on here, what's on his mind as he is about to breathe his final breath is the scope of the gospel message. That brothers and sisters would not only be gathered, but brothers and sisters from throughout the nations, around the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation would be gathered before him. He knew that the gospel could not be stopped, would not be stopped, that it would go to the ends of the earth. He knew that the good news would be preached and that his sheep would hear his voice. He knew that as the gospel would be preached, the power of God unto salvation would be applied to all of the elect from every nation. By God's grace and power, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would turn to God. What a wonderful, beautiful, deep thing to think about this from his perspective. He must have been thinking that is something that I can find joy in, in that moment. That helps us make sense of the idea that he endured his suffering with joy, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God when we understand what Jesus had to go through what he endured how greatly he suffered It's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it, that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. But this is what he, this is the reason. It's because he knew that God's purposes would never fail. He knew that all of his sheep would be gathered into one flock with one shepherd. He knew that one day, All the saints from around the world would come together around the throne in heaven as one, singing praises to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Jesus' joy. 
in his suffering. And this should be our joy too. Bringing the gospel to the nations was something that Jesus found great, satisfying joy in. It was something that he was deeply passionate about. And it's something that we should find joy in and be passionate about as well. That's why we, as a church, are financially committed to sending missionaries and training up indigenous gospel preachers and pastors around the world. That's why we pray for them regularly in the midst of our service while we're gathered. And not only would this be the case around the world, but throughout the age. Not only the nations, but every generation. Look what we see next as the psalm comes to an end. Verses 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. The power of God unto salvation, friends, is like an arrow that hits the bullseye of every single target it takes aim at. Jesus sees the good news echoing through the nations, through the ages, being passed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, until the fullness of the elect have come in. And he therefore rejoices the work that he came to accomplish is complete. It is finished. The wrath of God against every last one of his people's sins has been satisfied. What a beautiful reminder we have of the importance of passing the good news on. Not just to the nations around us, but also to our children and to our children's children. We have a task. We have a duty, a responsibility to not only share the gospel with our children, but to disciple them, to train them up so that when they're our age, they can be doing the same thing with their children, who will do the same thing with their children, who, and so on and so forth. Jesus isn't just hoping for the best here. It, it, it's not like he's just being hopeful. He didn't die so that Somebody might believe in him. He didn't die hoping that some would believe along the way in the age to come. No, he's very certain here. Those who would come to him would be drawn by the Father. Jesus says through David's pen, they will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That's you. That's me. That's everyone who has savingly believed through the ages. Friends, the fact that these are Jesus' thoughts revealed to us as he hung on the cross. They are perhaps the most amazing and the most beautiful thing that we can possibly set our minds on today. That thought that Jesus was thinking about his sheep through the ages around the world in his dying moments should move us to devote ourselves more fully, more deeply, more completely to his service. On the third day after this, Jesus was resurrected from the grave. 
He now lives and reigns forever. He has ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is still mindful of us, interceding on our behalf. These beautiful, magnificent truths should give us confidence for today, comfort in times of despair, and a certain hope for what is to come. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, thank you for this incredible psalm which reveals the heart and the mind of Christ who suffered on behalf of all of his sheep, who laid his life down so that they may live. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace we have heard his voice. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace we have followed. We pray, Lord, for the missionaries, not only that we've sponsored, but all the missionaries around the world. We pray for their safety. We pray for their encouragement. We pray that they would not lose heart. We pray that they would be diligent and faithful to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth in light of passages like this, knowing that your sheep will hear your voice. We pray for those pastors who are being raised up even today around the world, who are being discipled into positions. We pray that you would give them wisdom and encouragement, and safety to declare your word faithfully. But we thank you for showing us the love of Christ in this psalm, that he would not consider himself, but that he would be thinking about us, is too beautiful and too glorious a truth for us to fully wrap our minds around. But we thank you that he has redeemed us. We thank you that his work was completed. We thank you that... His perfect righteousness has been imputed to us by your grace. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.